0: You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrock.
1: Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrode, coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Hospital. And I wanna say a huge thank you to all of our dedicated listeners. Today is a very, very special podcast. I have three of the best pediatric gastroenterologists in celiac disease in the room with me. I have Dr. Ritu Verma from the University of Chicago Celiac Disease Center, Dr. Benny Kersner from our own Celiac Disease Program here at Children's National, and Dr. Jocelyn Sylvester from Boston Children's Hospital, and they are with me today to talk all about the recent International Celiac Disease Symposium that was held in Paris. So we've had lots of people out there commenting, asking us, what happened? We wanna hear more, because a lot of you saw our tweets and our newsletters. So we have three great minds here to talk about what happened during this conference. So welcome all of you. I'm so happy to have you here today.
0: Thank you. Great to be here.
2: Fantastic to be in the nation's capital.
1: <laughs> all right, well, since Jocelyn is bursting with excitement to talk about Paris, tell us, Jocelyn, what did you think of the conference?
2: Well, I think you always have to judge a conference first and foremost by the location. Paris is an amazing city. Second of all, by the food, which really didn't measure up at this conference. There was several, it was interesting. Often it International Celiac Disease Symposium, all the food is gluten-free, because there tends to be a lot of people with celiac disease at International Celiac Symposia. At this particular event, they decided to have a mixed menu where they had both gluten-free and gluten-containing items, and there was ongoing confusion about what did and did not contain gluten, uh, with several incidents where things labeled gluten-free actually contained things that were labeled containing gluten. So, (laughs) If you judge it by the food, not so great. If you judge it by the talks, I think there were definitely some interesting things that came out of it. And I would say that probably the most anticipated moment was also the most anticlimactic, because we all went to the conference wondering, how's Bob Anderson doing? (laughs) What's going on with Bob Anderson? What happened with his trial? And Bob Anderson is the uh, immunologist who's head of ImmunoSantee who had the NEXVAC study. And so he presented the results of the NEXVAC study, which were very interesting because when they designed the clinical study, There's always a lot of things you can learn from any one study. So the main thing is called the primary outcome. And then additional things you can find out are called the secondary outcomes. And so this particular study, the primary outcome was to see after people had been treated with this immunotherapy vaccine, how did they respond to a gluten challenge? And so the primary outcome was symptoms and the secondary outcomes were more related to cytokines and signaling and more biological things but not actually the symptoms themselves. And what was really interesting was that when we looked at the biological things there was some signal that the immune system was not responding as strongly but it failed the primary outcome because there was no impact on symptoms and so that's why the trial was stopped. And so probably not the talk he was hoping to give but I will say that you could hear a pin drop, nobody was looking at their phones, everybody was very excited to hear, and he had the longest and most vigorous applause of the entire conference.
1: Absolutely. So for our listeners who don't understand a lot of that scientific language you just (laughs) used, so Dr. Anderson was working on a vaccine for celiac, and there was Several sites around the country and that were doing trials to see how they responded. And so can you just talk a little bit about what happened in the trial? So they were given the vaccine and they were
2: told to eat gluten or not eat gluten? So they were given the vaccine they were told to maintain a gluten-free diet and given the vaccine. And then they were brought in and given gluten um, so so they could measure their response to gluten and One of the things about this trial that's really important, and there will actually be a lot of papers coming out, and we'll be talking more about this trial for years to come because it really is teaching us a lot about how to do trials for celiac disease. And so this was actually a blinded gluten challenge. So people didn't know if they were getting gluten or placebo.
1: And was there any difference between the people who were given gluten and placebo
3: and what they reported their symptoms to be? I
2: don't remember.
3: I okay. think, as I recall, there was no difference, and that was one of the. And I think that's really where we go back to clinical trials mm-hmm. and yeah. what, why things fail when you're starting looking at symptoms as sort of endpoint, because symptoms are not always the endpoint in celiac disease, for example.
1: So, is this the end of the next vaccine? Uh, we more to come. So, hopefully, we'll see Bob again at a conference. What else do you think? What were other big topics you guys were really
3: interested in? Um, so I think from my standpoint, I was hoping for more. Um, I've gone to each one of the international CILIAC conferences, and it almost seems like it's a little bit tired now. Um, so there's, you go into the conference hoping to hear much, much more than what you've been hearing. However, I have to say what was really nice uh, in Paris was the discussion of uh, involving dieticians, the follow-up sort of care of people with celiac disease. I thought that was really nice to bring that up. Uh, There was discussion about psychology, but perhaps not exactly uh, what we would like. But I think that that's something we hopefully will have more of that to come and have a team that will take care of the patients, whether they're children or adults, both looking at the psychological aspects. Um, So having a team sort of approach, I thought, was something that was discussed maybe a little bit more at this than at the previous ICDS.
1: Benny, you had a pretty big moment in the big ballroom on psychology. Will you tell our listeners about that?
0: Well, you know, psychology is an issue for medicine. Obviously, it plays an enormous role in everyone's lives if they're having issues. And celiac patients have a great many issues and it's not mysterious to acknowledge that children in particular are going to have problems with the diet that excludes them socially, their parents become ridiculously attentive at times, there's all sorts of stuff. So we have been lucky enough through philanthropy to have a a psychologist and uh, as had been pointed out at the conference, we started off in the belief that insurance companies would not be supportive. And we were very concerned that we were running this on the backs of our philanthropic philanthropic contributors, which we are lucky to have. But we tested it, and to our surprise, if the documentation was appropriate, if you injected the notion that you weren't doing treatment for celiac disease, but you were doing treatment for its consequences in terms of emotional upset, uh, the payment was remarkably good and consistent and uh, leads us to reevaluate evaluate uh, You know attitude to the insurance companies and certainly we believe it's made a difference. I'll add this anecdotally we're seeing a remarkably high incidence of considerable emotional difficulty in the patients who choose to come back to a multidisciplinary clinic Uh, The last clinic we had, I would say six out of the nine patients had substantial issues and I think they are self-selecting. I think that's one of the reasons that's bringing them back to clinic and I think all of us in multidisciplinary clinics are experiencing poor return rates and maybe this is one of the things that we could help encourage return for comprehensive care if this type of facility is available
2: and I think really you mentioned the word attitude and I think one of the comments that really stuck out for me, in my mind at the conference came up in one of the discussion sessions where somebody said that people don't want to come for follow-up because it's not worth it for them to come once a year for half an hour to talk to somebody which I think is a very interesting attitude if you think about my patients with inflammatory bowel disease who I expect to come every four weeks, every six weeks for two hours or more to get an infusion and I don't even talk to them. (laughs) And uh, so I think really... It says a lot about what we value and what is valued, and so I think part of the reason that people are returning to your multidisciplinary clinic is that the expectation is follow-up, and I think that as providers, we have not necessarily been as good at establishing that expectation. Um, And I think actually Dr. uh, Sciacchi gave a very good talk um, about transition and um, follow-up, and really hit on a lot of these issues, um, and the importance of being organized and the idea that really there's key things about each individual's diagnosis that they need to know and that health providers should know and should be transferring.
3: And I, I think if we think about ourselves, we would go back somewhere where we thought we would get something. So it's up to us to be able to give that information or treatment or help to the family so that they feel like they need to come back and have that expectation. Because if you go back, to us, like to the inflammatory bowel disease patients, it's an expectation. They're not told, well, you come in when you feel like, or you're not, or we'll just check your labs and you know we'll call you with the results. Uh, that's a number of people who take care of children with celiac disease will say that. Oh, we'll just check the labs and you know if the labs are fine, you don't have to come in. So some of it is the way we um, educate the families as well uh, with that follow-up. Um, so I think one of the other things I wanted to point out that I thought it was nice they brought up was Again, going back to the um, negative biopsies, positive serology. I think we've always yep, struggled absolutely. with what to do with that.
0: Yeah, I, I would reinforce it. Firstly, this is the first one I've been to, so I'm not okay. jaded. <laughs> I have to start uh, going now. <laughs> But... Uh, uh, couple of things that I took First, away. First, can you
1: explain to everyone, those who don't know what you mean by serology? And All right, uh, I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> you, well, when we diagnose celiac disease, obviously we do a blood test these days, which is based, and we're looking at the sort of immunological responses or serology, and the tissue transglutaminase in particular is the strong hint that you have celiac disease and then there's some debate as to when or why not you should do a biopsy to confirm it and doing a biopsy is tricky Uh, and I found it interesting to listen to the experience of others because it parallels my own experience that when the changes are subtle there's a lot of room for misinterpretation and how you apply the diagnostic criteria and how accurately you evaluate the biopsy, how you cut it and section it and who you have to read it, all of these very pragmatic things I thought were addressed repeatedly and for me at least reassuring and brought me back to the clinic saying I have a better handle on this thing. So it was useful. What is your better
1: Um, handle? What do you think it's changed for you?
0: I think I have become progressively more impressed with the idea of potential celiac disease as opposed to definitive celiac disease. And what does potential celiac disease mean? Potential celiac disease for practical purposes is a serological value that's positive, often not all that positive, and a biopsy which shows the early changes, notably infiltration of the epithelium with lymphocytes and the beginnings of um, a reaction in the intestine, the crips that sort of factory for, celiac, for, for the enterocytes increases. But the point we use is the moment or the point beyond which there's atrophy of those finger-like projections. Now, the way you cut that specimen and line it up can give you impressions of atrophy that may or may not be true. And given that this is a lifelong diagnosis, Being exact at that moment and understanding it fully and taking precautions is is so important. Um, and yes, that was well addressed. Yeah. I don't think it's rocket science, but it gets down to what counts.
1: But I think for a lot of parents, especially with young children, who yeah. don't want their child to get to a place where they have no villi and they have a point right. in their life where they're not absorbing nutrients, the question becomes, why would you make them progress to such an advanced disease state if you could start to see the changes and change it earlier?
3: But I think the study that was done when they showed those 200-plus yeah. people was that... Um, there were only a few, that fifteen percent on. or something, that went yeah. on to have that. Yeah. So I guess the flip side is, do you want to put your child on a lifelong gluten-free diet? Yeah. Um, and that, I think, exactly is something right. that yeah. we would need to continue to look I at. It's Arishio,
0: isn't it, who, yeah. who has done a beautiful prospective mm-hmm. study. And in that study, one-third of those patients reversed and became normal. One-third didn't go get worse and didn't get better but persisted and one third declared themselves a celiac disease. With those numbers, I think you have at least the responsibility to explain to the parent that these, these are the potential ups and downs and you're not sort of assaulting them with gluten indefinitely. You're saying we're gonna go on for a little while yeah. and give us a chance to prove it because it's so worthwhile down the road.
1: I think that's really a helpful way to think that down the road it can it can mean a difference between a which, lifelong sentence yeah. or you know just a little bit more investigating
2: and right. people are qu- quick to go on the gluten-free diet and I think it also is a good time to sort of reflect on sensitivity and specificity of diagnostic testing yeah. and so in medicine we talk a lot about sensitivity which is how likely is it that you're gonna pick up the people who have the disease with the test, and so if it's 50% sensitive, that means half the people who have the disease are gonna have a normal result. The other thing is specificity, which means how many people with a positive TTG actually are gonna have celiac disease. And this is another area, I think, of more intense debate. And um, there's a very recent uh, guideline from the European Pediatric Gastroenterology Society revisiting this issue of when do you have such high serology that the specificity is 100% and you can diagnose celiac disease without a biopsy? And they're moving in the direction of, it's so specific that you could even potentially diagnose celiac disease on the basis of serology even in an asymptomatic
3: patient. Which is, you know, again, I think if you, uh, that's huge, that's big uh, and something new, but it almost seems like why it can, and, and then we don't do that here in North America. So here we are, then we have patients who are reading or who are going on social media and learning about the European guidelines, and then why can we not do the same? So one of the things that I sort of came back from that conference was it almost seems like that people working in silos, you know, everyone's Good. sort of doing the yeah. same thing. It's almost like the world of celiac disease, if, it could be a good world, would be, okay, you take care of this, You this, this group works on diagnosis, this group works on biopsies. this group works on whatever. I think we would progress so much better. It's like everyone's doing a little bit of the same stuff. And yeah. it just yeah. seemed, uh, but again, those European guidelines are going to be thrown back at our face here because here we keep talking biopsy. <laughs> um, and now I, I,
0: I just, I, a sort of philosophical point, both the Europeans and the Americans have what we call guidelines. Can, before yeah, we they, go any
1: further, can you guys talk about the differences between them, so yes, people who I, aren't familiar?
0: Yes, let, let, let's, very simply, the Europeans state that if your tissue transglutaminase is greater than 10 times normal, that in and of itself, supplemented by a response to a gluten-free diet in time, is probably sufficient. They used to say you had to also get your genetics done and they're even dropping back now and saying it's just 10 times normal. Yes. Now, given that that's true, there are counter arguments amongst them being that it could be a false positive, the lab might have, excused the, excuse the word, screwed up, <laughs> but or, or, uh, and, and techniques differ and yield different results. And we, ha- we argue too that there are associated conditions notably is anophilic esophagitis which occurs in 10% of cases that we pick up and we do and have picked it up quite, quite frequently in our clinic by doing biopsies yeah. and that it's a lifelong commitment that we hesitate with but to get back to my original point for myself I'm to the point where I feel both our guidelines both have valid arguments and I don't feel it's for me to dictate uh, which way to go I, I make my argument to them I tend to be biased in the direction of doing the biopsy but I make it very clear that these are things they need to consider think about it and tell me what they would like to do what what approach do you take
3: I you know again if someone is asymptomatic um, I really try and steer them towards a biopsy right um, and then, you know, you go into, okay, then what about the eosinophilic esophatitis? So if it's a baby, and again, it's all based on my feeling at that time, but if it's a baby, very symptomatic, the TTG is elevated, the endomycele is positive, mom has celiac disease you know, do I really want to put the child in on a uh, with an endoscopy? But I don't and see it tr- by baby, you don't mean an uh,
2: infant, no, <laughs> you mean somebody who's two, old, three, what? two, three years old. Oh, so, right, yes, right. that
3: baby. Um, so that's <laughs> where I would go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and that absolutely needs to be clarified. Right. Um, then it's a personal bias almost. Right. Um, I will give them the option. So I never, ever have this discussion just on the phone. I'll have it in the office. Absolutely. Um, It's having everyone, you know, you spend the time and you discuss and then you give them the choice. Um, Older children, I tend to steer them more towards a biopsy. I also feel like, again... But you
0: use the words tend to steer them too. Yes. You're not saying I dictate to them. No, (laughs) no, (laughs) I I don't.
3: That is, I think that's... Sort of the way I've always been. It's like I don't, I don't like to do that dictation part, but I don't like to dictate my charts either. Um, but, but I, um, I think the decision making should be right, right. joint
0: decision making. Yes. What about you, Jonathan?
3: So, I think there's a lot of equipoise here. I
2: don't think we really know what is the best thing to do, but I actually trained as a scientist before I trained as a physician, <laughs> which means that I like to get a baseline.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I have a bench postdoc.
2: <laughs>
0: I I, I, well, still I, young, I, I, I have culinary school, so. <laughs> I have a
2: Bachelor of Arts, but I also have a PhD. <laughs> right, and down. so um, I like to do a biopsy because I think it gives more certainty to the diagnosis.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: As Betty mentioned, sometimes you find another diagnosis that you weren't looking for along the way. And it's very difficult to turn the clock back once you take somebody off gluten. And so if things don't go as expected, it's always nice to know where you started when you're doing that follow-up and she, biopsy. Actually, you make
0: a very strong point, and I do point this out, yeah. and I'm sorry I didn't say it earlier. We have seen in adult medicine, in celiac disease, the need to re-biopsy, mm-hmm. and we don't really quite know in pediatrics if there is a need or not, or whether it would serve a function, and there are cases that come to re-biopsy. Having that original baseline may prove to be very great. You know, we may be very thankful for it when that time comes.
2: And, and, and we talk a lot about mucosal recovery and are people's villi getting taller on a gluten-free diet and it's very we're doing a study in Canada where we're doing a diagnostic biopsy and a protocol follow-up biopsy and even the people who still have vellus atrophy well their villi are still short by vellus standards they're taller than they were when they started (laughs) so I think it's always good to know where you started from Um, that said I also think that There's people who feel like, well, if there's a more modern way of doing this, if we can get this with a blood test, why would we do the biopsy? And I think that's equally valid. And so I also put it to the parents. I would say I always have the discussion in clinic, but I often have a follow-up discussion by telephone to give the family an opportunity to discuss it, particularly if it's an older adolescent who really, i encouraging them to make the decision on their own. They don't like being put on the spot in clinic, and I don't like to do that to them. Um, and so I think how we're managing celiac disease is evolving and I think there's a camp of people who only want a biopsy after they make the diagnosis and there's a camp of people who only want a biopsy to make the diagnosis and what we should be doing is probably somewhere in between
3: Do you, I, you know, I agree you, I think that the discussion follows up in a phone call but that first discussion is never in a phone call sure. um, and I, I think all of us scientists or otherwise. I think we do give that. But what happens if, uh, you know, discuss in terms of having the baseline biopsies, and I would say 95% of the patients I see get a biopsy. It's only those where the parent has celiac disease, it's a baby who's four years old, (laughs) Um, is where, and sometimes even, I mean, recently I saw someone who's a teenager, which I really, really did not agree with that. And that I was maybe a little bit stronger than I am, that that child should have had a biopsy, but mom did not want because she herself has celiac disease. And I think that's not the right decision there. But again, that was a discussion. But do you then not follow the children, Jocelyn, if the parent says, I'm not doing a biopsy, or the teenager says, I'm not doing oh, a biopsy? Oh, no, I, no. So, see
2: so I absolutely keep everybody in my practice that gets diagnosed with celiac disease, and even those people who we think might have celiac disease and then turn out not to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important that we follow patients with celiac disease regardless of their pathway to diagnosis Um, and in part because we know that there's probably about 30% of adults and children who have ongoing symptoms that don't resolve on a gluten-free diet. And this is part of the reason to get that baseline biopsy. So when the symptoms aren't getting better and you decide that you're gonna do a biopsy now, at least, again, you have something to compare it to.
1: So we've been talking a lot about diagnosis and a lot of our listeners are listening because they're already diagnosed or their child is already diagnosed. But where I wanna go with this is talking about diagnosis of siblings and how we watch the siblings. I was really fascinated by the talk about saying that you've, if they haven't gotten it by the time they're six, you don't need to screen them anymore. What do you guys think?
3: I believe it was eight. Or nine. Or nine. <laughs> nine. Nine. nine.
1: Sorry, nine.
0: Nine. <laughs> nine. Give or take, nine. Give or take. <laughs> <Yes>. Whatever. Nine.
2: <laughs> so Dr. Joe Murray from Mayo Clinic, who I respect very much, uh, warned me that he feels like there's a schism developing in celiac disease, that there's becoming a divide between the be. pediatric celiac world and the adult celiac world. And I think if you think about how this comes about, it's actually very interesting. So we have about 20 years in the TTG era now, so pediatricians are really only seeing people who had TTGs to be diagnosed. And we also have in pediatrics these cohort studies that have been going on for about 20 years where they've been doing serial TTGs on kids at risk for celiac disease. On the other side, you have adult practitioners where the vast majority of their patients have spent the most of their life in the pre-TTG era, and many of them have not been diagnosed and may have had celiac disease for a long time. We also know that you can develop celiac disease at any age. And so the question is, we know that TTG levels can fluctuate, and when does that start, and when does the horse start to get out of the barn? And so our pediatric colleagues are asserting that when they follow these kids, if they've had multiple negative or normal TTG levels by the time they get to be in the double digits, they really aren't seeing those kids then go on to, zero to convert to go from negative to positive and develop celiac disease. Now, our adult colleagues can't do the same experiment because they don't have those patients when they are six, eight, nine, and 10. And they are able to show cases, and I do believe that you can develop celiac disease de novo at any age, and I've seen it. And so I think there's a tension between those two things, and I certainly recommend that all first-degree relatives of my patients get screened when somebody's diagnosed regardless of the age of the first-degree relative and strongly recommend that the grandmother with lifelong intestinal symptoms (laughs) and osteoporosis get screened and recommend that the children get screened um, in part because I don't think we have enough data to know that it's safe to stop and because we know that a major risk of undiagnosed celiac disease is poor calcium resorption and low bone mineral density, which is especially important when you're in your teenage and early adult years.
0: You, you know, I, I, I was also fascinated by that paper, and surprised by it. Uh, had, had, and the way I thought of it was, I've seen adults who've been diagnosed, I've got patients of my own whose fathers, and I right. can think of them mm-hmm. you know, right now, who were diagnosed late in life. What we don't know is what they were doing when they were eight and seven and fifteen and whether they just ultimately were asymptomatic to the point that they became symptomatic. What I'm not sure about and we'd love to see case reports of cases and there must be some where you've had biopsies earlier in life for an alternative reason the duodenum was normal and now you've got celiac disease. Until we see those we can't be sure that in fact the late onsets were genuine late onsets rather than asymptomatic early onsets.
2: And I think this is a really interesting point, sorry to jump in again, Ritu, mm-hmm. but um, I think that you know this discussion about screening came up early in the conference, and then I think some of the adult, pra- primary practitioners that primarily treat adults, because even as pediatric gastroenterologists, we are adults, although we may not <laughs> act that way, <laughs> um, were changing their talk, and I think it was Dr. Mulder who had a very interesting case of a patient who was another clinician, another physician, who came to him and said, I think I have celiac disease. And he tested him by biopsy because this was a few moons ago in that pre-TTG era. (laughs) And the guy didn't have celiac disease, but he was really convinced he did because he thought he had symptoms when he had gluten. So, what he did is he kept volunteering for a control oh, in all of the studies. <laughs> and sure enough, 19 years later, he seroconverted and had a MARSH 3 lesion. Wow. Yeah, and that's so the, wow. that's the case reports mm-hmm.
0: we need.
2: And, and, and this happens. I also have seen Dr. Mackie from Finland present cases where, in a much, much earlier era. There were not zero, not one, not two, but three biopsies to diagnose celiac disease. And he had a set of twins where one, when they put them on a gluten-free diet, they got better. So so the three-biopsy protocol was, you think somebody has celiac disease, you do a biopsy, you find vellus atrophy. And they didn't have serology at this time, so they didn't know if that was from an infection, if that was from celiac disease, or milk allergy, or something else. So they put them on a gluten-free diet, for a few months, and then they'd do another biopsy to show that they'd gotten better. And then, because some of those other conditions can be transient or temporary and get better with time, they'd put them back on gluten to relapse them so they could show that it was a gluten-responsive enteropathy and that the biopsy, the villi, were short again. And so I've seen Dr. Mackey present this case of twins where one relapsed within months and the other took more than a decade. And so, again, another interesting question and perhaps why people have differential responses to gluten exposure is we don't really know once you sort of tamp down the immune reaction, how do you turn it back on? That's a really interesting point.
0: Well, yeah. So we're, to, so we're moving to
3: a different topic. What, was, what was your take on the um, talk on the neurological manifestations?
2: So I believe you're referring to a talk that um, there can be neurologic manifestations of non-celiac gluten sensitivity. There is um, thought to be manifestations of Neurologic manifestations of celiac disease, particularly related to uh, TTG, but not the TTG that we think about in the gut, which is actually TTG2, but TTG6. And TTG6 is a form of TTG that's more in uh, neurons. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So how would you test for that? Is that a different TTG blood test, or is it all part of the same?
2: It's a different test. And um, it is available. If you think you need it, you'll have to ask your clinician to request it specifically because there's one company that makes the acid, but most of it's done out of one lab in England. So if you're a patient with celiac disease that has
1: headaches, would you ask your doctor to run that? You know,
0: it's,
1: it's, These it's, are the questions that are going to come uh, in from uh, email. I, so, so, so I, I, I think
2: <laughs> the answer is you're a patient with celiac disease, which means you're a patient on a gluten-free diet. And the thing about neurologic manifestations of celiac disease is that they tend to be gluten-sensitive. And so... I don't think you should get the test because if you have a diagnosis of celiac disease, it's not going to change the management to know that you have antibodies to multiple forms of of TTG because right now the treatment's a gluten-free diet. Yeah,
0: I think it's clear with stuff like ataxia where you've got that relationship. I don't think they've established a relationship with headaches.
3: And I don't think there's a
0: structural change in the brain. So what do you do with all
3: these people that say they have headaches? I'm sorry, you... There was a talk, the talk that he gave was talking about chronic headaches yes. and um, having some MRI changes yeah. and so on. I mean, I think there's so much more work that needs to be done, but it was a neurologist who gave that talk.
0: And there were mm-hmm. MRI changes with the yes. AIDS? Yes. I missed that one,
3: sorry. Um, so, you know, it was just, I, you know, I thought it was interesting and something that if It's more, I mean, I I don't, I've never ordered TTG-6. I don't even know how expensive and where it goes. And uh, I did not actually know that there was a commercial lab that was doing that. So the
2: assay is very new. It's only recently been developed. Mm -hmm. Um, And most of the testing, as I mentioned, is run in Europe. Um, I think definitely this gets back to the issue of symptoms in celiac disease. And I never really know how to interpret symptoms, because I think patients interpret symptoms as a result of gluten exposure, when it might be that they have gastroenteritis just like all the other kids in their class. At the same time, I think one of the things that was very intriguing, which has been reported by many groups now, is that certain cytokines, so certain molecules which are used by immune cells to talk to each other and signal each other and get each other to activate, um, particularly IL-2 or interleukin-2, are very specifically elevated in a very short time window after gluten exposure. And that this seems to correlate specifically with the symptom of vomiting. And so this is a very interesting finding because it's the first time there's really a link between gluten and immune response and a specific message and a specific symptom. And so I think there's more to be said on this story. I think it's also important to know that gluten has sequences that activate T cells in the adaptive immune system and are very specific to gluten. It also has sequences that activate a more primitive form of immunity that's not really specific that just reacts to signals such as bacterial cell wall. And so it doesn't know what bacteria it is, it just knows it's a bacteria. And so gluten is not just one thing, and it doesn't just interact with the body in one way. Um, We also know that when you eat gluten, it gets absorbed into your bloodstream, and that's how it gets into your urine, which means it's circulating, and so therefore it can affect tissues in a more direct way too. So I think we have much more to learn. Yeah,
0: you know, one of the things that you touched on and that I found most interesting is the notion that with gluten challenge within a short time we can identify things like IL-2 or alternatively tetramers that will allow us to diagnose celiac disease even in patients who are on a gluten free diet and we, you know, that was one of the things I took away from the meeting that I think is really exciting and could change the way we practice. Now, so if you're listening you and really you're happening?
1: already on a gluten free diet and you haven't been properly diagnosed, there's a future that you might actually be able to get a diagnosis without doing a long gluten challenge.
0: And within a relatively short time.
3: Some of the information is from immunity and the vaccine. So so even though we don't have the vaccine, but yeah. there's a lot as just right. was saying right. earlier. Uh, but those were that was really interesting that then you don't have to do six, eight weeks of challenge and suffering and right, do something right.
2: else with that. And I think that's a really important point, too, to mention that we, we kind of said briefly earlier that the T study with this next vaccine, it taught us a lot about celiac disease. And this is part of the reason why finding a treatment takes a long time and finding a treatment takes a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so even if we don't get through the goalposts and get a treatment that gets onto the market and you can use. We're still learning really important things about celiac disease that we can use and that can help us in other ways. So,
1: we've talked a lot about science y things for the last 36 minutes, and before we run out of time for today, I want to talk about some things that happened not necessarily in the lecture hall. Helmet New Cake. <laughs> so I know most of our listeners think that, like, ugh, we only see the doctors in the hospital. The doctors never leave the hospital. And if they leave the hospital, it's just to go talk to other doctors and to do science in a lab. You
0: really think they believe that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I want to tell you all what some of your doctors were really doing in Paris when they weren't in these lectures. So I will, well, I will spill the beans and that we went on a gluten-free bakery tour in Paris because all of these doctors, there are doctors from 10 pediatric hospitals around the United States who came together and walked around all of Paris to find the best gluten-free foods that are there. So what were the best finds? I mean, obviously, home New cake.
2: Yeah, I, I think Paris and France is the home of not only the croissant, but pain au chocolat. And... It's amazing. It's delicious. It's worth the trip.
1: If you do nothing else
2: in Paris, go
1: to Helmut Newcake for Sunday brunch and get one of everything.
2: But <laughs> so make sure you go early because they run out hours before closing every single day. Be there the minute the doors open. <laughs> or two hours before so you can be first in line. <laughs> because it's so good. But I was also
1: pretty blown away by Chambalande and the orange blossom flower that they used to make the bread. It was so good. And I forgot the name of those donuts like
2: puffs that they had yes it was shoe pastry with like these really like medium-sized not really crystals but like little pebbles of sugar that were
3: delicious um and I uh got some and sent for my daughter with Jocelyn (laughs) (laughs) Jocelyn kindly transported that on the plate she just loved the bread and the those things.
1: (laughs) But then also, so upon arrival in Paris, um, some of us from Children's National and arrived at the same time as Jocelyn from Boston and Since, you know, you're jet-lagged after getting in after the all-night flight, Jocelyn decided that we all had to stay awake and not sleep in the afternoon so that we could get adjusted to the time and be bright-eyed for the conference. So Jocelyn dragged me to every grocery store within walking distance of our hotel to find uh, gluten-free croissants in grocery stores, which we found many. In in all honesty, it was
2: actually a bit of a detour because we were looking for shoes and we didn't find (laughs) shoes. (laughs) But, But... we found some delicious uh, croissant and pain au chocolat that you can purchase in the grocery store, partially baked, that you then bring home and warm yourself so that they are nice and flaky and buttery and melt in your mouth.
1: And also bars that were like Twix bars yes they were really 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 good so in the show notes i will post links and photos of all of these things and links to all of the restaurants and bakeries so that if you are traveling to paris you can also enjoy the same things that that we all did and i think it's just nice for all of our listeners to know that their doctors are human too and enjoy delicious pastries
3: it was a scientific expedition <laughs> it was indeed <laughs> and, and i believe it, as
2: as you know uh listeners will know, wine is gluten-free. I think that there was also a lot of wine tasting that was... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Just a little bit. Oh, but we can't end without talking about crepes.
2: Oh, no. yes.
1: <laughs> the crepes were pretty amazing in, in France. There are lots and lots of places that have buckwheat as the base of their crepes. As you know, buckwheat is naturally gluten-free. So they could make, make any of the crepes both sweet and savory on the gluten-free um, batter. And they were
2: remarkable. Don't miss them. Especially with each shop seemed to make its own chocolate sauce and its own caramel sauce and that was especially good. Jocelyn definitely
1: asked for an extra side of chocolate (laughs) sauce. (laughs) So the moral of the story is that Paris brought us lots of wisdom and lots and lots of delicious food. So please check out the show notes for links to all of these places. I want to thank everybody for listening today and especially to our three guests for joining me to record this podcast. So
2: I hope everyone enjoyed the show and we'll talk to you again next time.